our motives matter, don't they? Motives are what drive our mission. So whatever your mission is, there's an underlying motive that is driving it. And they're crucial for us to determine uh, right and wrong. So it's not just the action itself that helps us know. I mean, sometimes it is. But sometimes we kind of need to know the motive behind it. What was, what was the reason why? What was driving it that helps us discern what's right and wrong? And motives aren't always easy to discern, are they? Because they're, they're kind of hidden beneath the surface at the heart level. And a wrong motive can take a, maybe a neutral behavior and move it from the ethical category of right to wrong. For example, think about stepping on somebody's toes. Everyone's probably done it before. If it's a mere accident with no ill motive, people will brush it off. People are kind of like, oh, hey, I know you didn't mean that. A quick apology, and it's done. But what if someone stepped on your toes, and they dared to be brutally honest with you? And they said, uh, hey, actually, I meant to step on your toes. Matter of fact, I've been planning this out for some time now, and I wanted to cause you pain. Well, that incident would cause a different reaction, right? I mean, we'd see right there your conflict resolution style. Some, some of the, uh, you know, the fight or flight uh, responses might be going on. It's the same act, stepping on toes, but now motive changes it altogether. Our legal system tends to pay obsessive attention to motive, doesn't it? I mean, a speech act becomes a hate crime literally based on motive. That's what the court is trying to figure out. Premeditated offenses get harsher punishments based on uh, motive. The capacity to understand right and wrong is a fundamental threshold for a courtroom to, uh, to establish competency, or yeah, competency and the ability to, to know what is right or wrong. You see, we care about why people do the things they do. We are people who care about motive. And so at our last service back in July, we were looking at the mission of Jesus. We wanted to know, what was Jesus here to do? What was the grid that was helping him understand every action that he did? And we saw it summarized in Luke 19:10, where Jesus says, "The Son of Man came not to, or the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost." His mission provided this grid and this framework for every decision that he made. If a decision was before him, he would ask, "Does this fulfill my mission to seek and save the lost?" And if it did, he would go for it. And if it didn't, he would abandon it. And in our passage, we looked at two people in the city of Jericho. The first was this blind man who's really oppressed in every way. Because of his blindness, he's economically oppressed, socially oppressed, religiously oppressed. He's kind of cast off to the side. And at the same time, in Jericho, we meet another man who is an oppressor. We see he's a tax collector, and he has used thuggery and corruption to gain wealth on the backs of other people. And Jesus enters in to Jericho and sees that both of these men are lost, even though they have completely different lives. The blind man oppressed in every way, Zacchaeus really a blind oppressor. And for different reasons, they're both lost, but Jesus seeks them both out. And then scripture shined a light on us as we saw that passage that in, a lot, in, in many ways, we are both in varying ways and in varying times oppressed where people will sin against us. At the same time, we're oppressors. We will sin against other people. And the good news is is that Jesus is the only one who comes to save both oppressors and 
the oppressed. And so if that's Jesus' mission, today I want to look at another passage of Scripture where we see his motive, where we see what is driving his mission. And as Andy read in Mark 10, 32-45, Jesus is on his way into Jerusalem, and this will be Jesus' last time. And on this final road trip, he is going to have a conversation with his disciples. And he's going to show, um, throughout this conversation, we're going to see what's required and necessary for Jesus to actually fulfill that mission. And as, as the conversation unfolds, we're going to be able to see what his motive is. We'll see what's driving and fueling his mission. And so let's jump into the text together. Again, if you've got your Bible or your device, go ahead and open it up to Mark chapter 10, and we'll look at verse 32. The words will also be up on the screen. So hear these words of Scripture. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. So this verse kind of sets the scene for us so that we can enter in and feel it. And so we're invited in to relive the story And I hope that we can uh, maybe enter in to where we can experience some of the tension and the resolution, and then we'll be forced with a challenge to respond. Are we going to believe it? And how are we going to live in light of it? All right? Good narrative begs us to enter into the story, to feel what the characters themselves are feeling. And so as it opens up, we see that Jesus is leading the way to Jerusalem. So I want you to kind of picture as Jesus is walking down the road, Jesus is at the front of it, and he is headed towards Jerusalem. And we see that the disciples who are following right behind them, it says that they're amazed. Now, in order to understand their astonishment, we have to understand what's been going on. You see, Jesus has already predicted that this trip is not going to end well. Not once, but twice, he has predicted that this trip will end in his death. And so their astonishment and their amazement is centered around the fact that there's all sorts of political and religious tension that is boiling. And now it's coming to a pressure point. And he is headed right towards that pressure point. But instead of being nervous, instead of being wavering, instead of taking all kinds of detours, Jesus is steadfast. He is resolute. He is moving toward Jerusalem with determination and purpose. And the disciples are seeing this man who knows he is headed right for his death. And they're astonished. They're amazed. Who, who is this man? Not only that he can predict what's about to happen, but why would he go straight for impending death? The way Luke's gospel says it, it says that Jesus' face was set on Jerusalem. And we have that phrase in our language too. Have you ever seen the face of someone who was set? I mean, you could just tell by looking at their face that they were bound and determined to do whatever it was that they were going to do. And you knew that no matter what you told them, you knew no matter how well you argued, you knew no matter what you said to them, that when their face is set, there is no deterring them. This is Jesus. His face is set on Jerusalem. They're astonished at it. We're also told that, so you got Jesus in the front, you've got the disciples. There's this other crowd. We don't quite know exactly who they are, but wherever Jesus goes, there's this other, this crowd that kind of follows him along. But instead of being astonished and amazed, it says that they're afraid. 
See, with all the rumors and chatter going on about Jesus, some believed that he might actually be the political savior that they've been waiting for. And others are still on the fence, kind of making their play to go, I mean, is this a guy we want to be associated with or not? But everyone knows when they get to Jerusalem, something is going to go down. And so they're probably wondering, the people who are going to seek to kill and to capture Jesus, will they, will they see us as his band of rebels and will they try to capture us as well? I mean, maybe. But what's for sure is that everyone is headed into Jerusalem, not just this crowd. It's the Passover. This is one of the major pilgrimage feasts. If you are a Jew, you go to Jerusalem for the Passover. So everybody is headed in, and there's crowds of people. The pressure is mounting. You see, the, the, the tension is thick. You can cut it with a knife. Going into Jerusalem at this point is the equivalent of running towards the, t- the tornado. Have you seen those, those storm chasers on TV? When everyone else is like evacuating, going into the cellars, the storm chasers, they're grabbing their gear, they're looking out to find the tornado, and they're going straight for it, right into the heart of danger. This is like being out on the ocean and hearing there's a hurricane, and instead of getting away as fast as you can, this is turning the boat around, heading straight for the storm. And we are meant, as we're reading this, to enter into this ominous atmosphere. Some are amazed and others are afraid. And what they can't quite get their hands around is what is this urgency? What is, this, what is driving this death march to Jerusalem? And in this steadfastness of Jesus, we see part of his motive. And so it begs the question, what motive would explain his steadfast determination to move directly into harm's way? What could possibly be Jesus' reason for going straight into the storm? Let's look at this next verse as more of his motive will be uncovered. Mark 10, 33. And taking the 12 again, he began to tell them what was going to happen to them, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. Any of my grammar nerds sitting out there hear all of those future tense verbs? All right? Every one of them will be delivered, will condemn, will mock, will spit, will flog, will kill, will rise. He is making a prediction. And he's not doing so in vague generalities, is he? He's being very specific about what exactly is going to happen. Jesus knows when he's going to die, how he's going to die, what torture he'll experience as he's suffering. He knows who's going to execute him. He also knows that this uh, execution, this whole proceeding won't be done in some back alley. It is going to be at the head of the Roman Empire on display for all to see. And he will be tried and executed under a corrupt justice system Uh, not in some back alley. And then without skipping a beat, Jesus declares, not only will I die, but the grave will not hold me. I will rise again. Now it's one thing. Maybe Jesus is just savvy enough to have his pulse on the cultural climate. You've met some of those people who just, they kind of always just kind of know what's about to happen, right? They almost uh, can predict the headlines before they happen. And so maybe Jesus is just culturally savvy. He knows, okay, big Passover feast, 
People don't like me. They've been talking about my death. I'm heading into Jerusalem, and so now it's going to kind of come to a head. Maybe he's just culturally savvy. And maybe he even knows when Rome wants to kill someone, they crucify him. So maybe he could even do that. But resurrection? Coming back from the dead? I mean, who is this man that he can predict all of that? And Mark wants you to ask that question. Who is Jesus that he can make such predictions? See, Jesus knows what's ahead. And he knows that in order to accomplish his mission, he must die. And he is unwavering. He is not waking, uh, walking away from it. In fact, he's moving right for it. Jesus knows that in order to fulfill his mission, he will have to be steadfast. In order to fulfill his mission, Jesus will have to be steadfast. His resolve is sure and sound. He will not be delayed or deterred. He will not abandon his mission. He is unmovable. He is bound and determined to accomplish that for which he came to do. And so I want you to be asking yourself, what motive would Jesus possibly have that could produce such a steadfast resolve in the midst of coming danger? And now let's look at the next verse. We'll see another piece of his motive unfold. Look at with me at verse um, 35. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him and said, Teacher, we want you to do whatever we ask of you. Okay, so again, set the stage like Jesus is walking, the disciples are there, James and John kind of side saddle up to Jesus. And after hearing their, their best friend, their Lord, their master talk about how he's about to die, what would you expect them to say in response? What, what kind of compassionate, sympathetic things do you expect them to say? Something like, Jesus, I mean, we're going to be with you to the end. We're not going anywhere. But instead, they make a carte blanche request. They say, Jesus, we want a blank check. We want you to do whatever we ask for you. I mean, Jesus is talking about his imminent death, and they're asking Jesus for a favor. They clearly don't feel the weight of Jesus' words. And what you need to know is that these weren't just any disciples. James and John are brothers, and they're brothers that Jesus personally went to them and invited them to follow them. And over the last couple of years, James and John have experienced a closeness with Jesus. I mean, they've been invited not just into his uh, band of 12, but they've been invited in to his inner circle of three. And along with Peter, they've witnessed things that some of the other disciples never got to see. They saw when Jesus raised the little girl from the dead. They saw when Jesus went up on the mount and was transfigured where uh, his glory was put on full display, where God the Father spoke audibly out of the heavens and said, this is my son in whom I am well pleased, giving them every bit of confirmation that this was the long awaited for Messiah. I mean, these guys rolled so close with Jesus, they even had nicknames from him himself. Jesus called them the sons of thunder. I mean, these guys are tight with Jesus. And despite all that history, they don't get it. Despite all that closeness, they don't respond with compassion. And fortunately for us, Jesus is patient with those who don't get it, which means there might be hope for me. So instead of rebuking them, Jesus kind of goes along with the conversation and says, okay, well, what, what do you want? Look with me at verse 36. And he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? And they said, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Their Lord is about to suffer. 
and they're trying to jockey for positions of power and prominence. You see, James and John, they are starting to put some of the pieces together. They know that something big is coming with Jesus. You know, he's been talking about God's kingdom. And so they're like, we want to make sure that we're in the right place when everything, when all the dust settles. We want to make sure that we've got good positions. See, they expect that Jesus will come into great power. And they want to make sure that they've got good seats at the table. It's basically like this. It's like what happens in that uh, before the election and there's a kind of a front runner. And then everyone's like jockeying for like, okay, if I give you my endorsement, can I get chief of staff? Or maybe if I give you my endorsement, can I be secretary of state? That's essentially what they're doing. They're trying to get prominent seats at the table. They've put together Jesus as the Messiah, but they don't fully get what that entails. They can't fit the glory of Jesus on one hand and the suffering of Jesus on the other. Now, I do want to speak to the skeptic in the room. because I, I have a heart of a skeptic as well. So first of all, I want you to know you're welcome here. Um, you, you don't have to pretend to be someone that you're not. Um, you can come and, uh, and, and be a part of this church and, um, and, and figure out who Jesus is in community um, with us. And at the end of the service, we'd love to talk with you um, at the Q&A. But you may be thinking, okay, man, death predictions, God's kingdom. I mean, couldn't these guys have just made all this up years later after the guy that they were following around turned up dead? And I think that's a fair objection. You see, the disciples who were writing this gospel account, they did write it several years after Jesus died. But they didn't write it down to fabricate a myth. They wrote it down to proclaim a truth. What you have to understand is these disciples are your your average run-of-the-mill Jewish guys. And they grew up in their parents' home hearing about a day when the Messiah would come to end occupation by the foreign government of Rome. You see, for years, they've been politically oppressed. Someone other than themselves have been governing them. So there's just been this talk about one day when God will rescue them, one day when God will bring the Messiah and there'll be a free Jewish kingdom. And as these boys grew up, they started to form their own opinions and ideas about who this Messiah was. And all of this happened before they ever met Jesus. And when they meet him, they start to follow him. And they see him do all sorts of things, miracles and healings and um, speak with authority. And, and there's just this crowd and this energy that is following Jesus. And they're going, man, maybe this is the guy. Maybe this is the one we've been waiting for. On the same hand, the more they get to know Jesus, the more he starts to re- uh, redefine who the Messiah is. You see, he'll start to redefine who Messiah is with his words And in the coming days, he'll redefine it by his death. So what's my point? The gospel writers had misinformed and miscalculated expectations about who Jesus was, right? And and this account puts that front and center. And so to put it bluntly, the disciples, the one who are writing this down, they're shown as the ones missing the point, In fact, the way that this story is written, the disciples are slow to understand and their character flaws are on full display. And so if you were making up a story and you're kind of like the lead characters, would you write it in such a way that you you, uh, were failing all the time, where your flaws were on display, where you showed that you were unable to read the times? Of course not. It's embarrassing. 
The disciples are time and time again completely without tact and without uh, a plan of action. But the fact that the authors are willing to put their own flaws on display, the fact that they're willing to, to write on the, on the pages of Scripture that they got it wrong, that they had the wrong idea about the Messiah, actually speaks to the validity of the Scriptures themselves. I'm not saying that removes all doubt, but it, it should at least give some internal evidence for the credibility of this story for us to take it seriously this morning. All right, sidebar over. Let's go to verse 38. Jesus said to them, so James and John have asked, let us sit in power, uh, positions of power and glory. And Jesus says, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism which I am baptized? You see, Jesus offers them truth and love. He says, I don't think you know what you're asking for. Like a child who can't fully comprehend the world around them, James and John have made a request without knowing the full implications. You see, they're asking, when you come into glory, can we sit on your left and on your right? You see, they think his moment of true glory will be with pomp and circumstance and power and praise. But the reality of the Gospels is this. His moment of glory will be as a crucified king. And you know what? Two people will be by his side on that day of crucifixion. But it won't be James and John. It'll be two thieves, and they won't be sitting on a throne, but they'll be hanging on a cross. And so don't miss what Jesus is trying to teach his disciples and what I think he's trying to teach us, that to reign with Jesus is to suffer with Jesus. You see, in all of their expectations about Jesus and him being the Messiah, suffering is entirely missing from it. And not only have they dismissed Jesus' sufferings, they don't realize that they too will follow uh, in his footsteps as sufferers. You see, they don't have an expectation of a bloody Messiah or victory that comes from the cross. Their expectation was centered on the hope that the Messiah would be the one to wield the sword and shed blood, not the one who falls on the sword and gives his blood. And before we get too self-righteous thinking that, I mean, how could they have missed it? And, don't, and, and, and uh, uh, we need to pause. We need to pause because we chase after the same kind of status. We chase after the same kind of power. We chase after the same kind of control as well. We want the promotions. We want the titles that come with it. And we also want the lifestyle that those titles and those promotions afford. We like to build our little kingdoms and have dominion too. We try to work the angles and the systems in our favor. Sometimes it's more apparent and it's more obvious, and other times it's more sneaky and shady. But all of those desires are inside every single human heart. So Jesus, to help them consider their request, asks them a question. He asks them, are you ready to endure the cup that I will drink, or can you endure the baptism that I will be baptized with? If you're not familiar, in the Old Testament, the cup is a metaphor for suffering, it's saying that God's wrath is coming. Now, when you hear the word God's wrath, that's not a real popular word in our day. You can't think temper tantrum like a two-year-old who throws a fit. God's wrath is his settled opposition to sin and injustice. It's his righteous opposition to everything in the world that seeks to destroy goodness, truth, and beauty. You see, this is his creation. And when he sees it being destroyed, 
Nothing like that. There, there's injustice. It's that same feeling that you feel when you hear of a heinous crime or when you hear of the innocence of a child being taken away, that something must happen. That can't stand. That feeling is just a small microcosm of the massive cosmic wrath that God has in seeing his beautiful creation destroyed. Listen to one example in Psalm 75, verse 7 and 8, about the cup. It is God who executes judgment, putting down one and lifting up another. For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all of the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. See, what that verse is telling us is there is a cup of God's wrath, and it will be poured out, and it will be emptied. You see, because God is just, he can't just sweep evil underneath the rug. Because of his holy character, he has to judge it. And not only is the cup a metaphor for uh, wrath and suffering that's coming, baptism is also another metaphor for that. You see, baptism, we go down into the waters. And Jesus is saying, like you go down into the waters of the grave of baptism, I will be plunged down into calamity. Think about it. When someone is plunged down into the waters of baptism, what happens if they stay down there? They drown. They die. It could become their grave. That's why we quickly get people out of the water. You don't have to fear baptism. We'll get you out. But it's a picture of this is a grave that we're going into. We're being buried and we're being raised. And so what Jesus is saying to James and John, brothers, the cup of wrath will be poured out on me so that it won't be poured out on you. I will, go be, I will be baptized into judgment so that you may live. Look what he said. So he asked them, are you able to, have to experience that? Are you able to endure that? Look what they say in verse 39. They say, yep, we're able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it's been prepared. So you saw it too, right? James and John quickly respond. They're not, they're not taking the weight and the seriousness of Jesus' words. And Jesus is patient with them. He knows they don't fully understand. They don't know what's to come. And so Jesus is trying to manage their expectations. He's telling them, okay, you are going to suffer. You are going to drink some of the cup that I drink, and you are going to be baptized with some of the baptism that I am being baptized. He's basically telling them that one day you will die um, as martyrs. And we know from... Uh, from history, that both James and John will die um, as martyrs. But they will not experience the judgment and penalty for sin like Jesus will. Only Jesus is able to bear the divine judgment in a substitutionary way. And the disciples' suffering, uh, where Jesus' um, suffering ends in um, his death and later his resurrection, the disciples' suffering actually just ends in their ever-increasing joy. When they come out of their suffering, they, are, they do so into the very presence of God himself. And so through this part of the conversation, another aspect of Jesus' uh, motive has come into light. We see that to, in order for Jesus to fulfill his mission, he will have to endure suffering. I mean, that's what this whole section has been about, is his suffering. And this conversation that his suffering, that the suffering required, uh, that suffering is required for Jesus to fulfill his mission. And so we've already seen that Jesus has to be steadfast 
to fulfill his mission. Now we see that suffering is coming. And I hope you've seen in here that this isn't just run-of-the-mill suffering. This isn't like, uh, oh, my, you know, uh, uh, my car's broken down and I'm late to work. This is the kind of suffering that we often deal with. This is cosmic suffering for the sins of the world. This is suffering like nobody has ever experienced. And so it begs the question again, what motive could Jesus possibly have that he'd be willing to endure such suffering? Let's go to the last section of this passage to see the last piece of his motive before we put it all together. So verse 41, And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. Um, So, the other disciples hear what's going on. Okay, remember, you got Jesus in the front, you got the disciples, the two have walked up, and they kind of hear the chatter of, hey, Jesus, what are you talking about? And they kind of put together that James and John are trying to get positions of power and prominence, and they become indignant. Now, do you think they're indignant and angry because of how insensitive and selfish their request is? Absolutely not. They're frustrated because they got to Jesus first. They've got in, they've made the request, and so maybe there won't be a place at the table for them. And so it's at this point that Jesus takes this teachable opportunity to redefine for them what true leadership is and what true greatness is. He says that greatness and power is not asserting rank or having a title. And he tells them, don't look at the world around you to figure out what it means to be powerful and great. Look what he says next. But he says in verse 43, It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. What Jesus is saying is that leadership and greatness are defined by service and ministry. Rather than asking what the masses can do to serve the leader, the leader seeks to serve the needs of the people. You see, leaders in Jesus' kingdom don't grab for power. They relinquish it through service and sacrifice, even at the cost of their own life. True influence is not gained by power and control. You see, we can be, we can through force make people do things, right? You can manipulate behavior, but that force can never change the human heart. So Jesus is saying, be so sacrificially loving that the people around you, even those who disagree with you, will soon be unable to imagine the place without you. See, Jesus is taking all their presumptions and assumptions about leadership, and he's flipping them upside down. True status in the kingdom is by grace, not merit or achievement or position. And so if you want power, Jesus says, give it up. You want to be first? Jesus says, Be last. It's a complete reversal of our human instinct, isn't it? That's why it's such a a paradoxical thing for us to grab, uh, put our minds around. Now let's look at this last verse. Verse 45. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus did not leave any room for doubt about what he came to do. Right here in this verse, black and white, he says, the reason I came was to die, but not simply to die. 
He did not come just simply to be a, a historical martyr, but he came to die a sacrificial death. It's a substitutionary death. The way we say it is in our place for our sins. And what you need to know about this death is it's not incidental or circumstantial to his mission and motive. It's absolutely central and foundational and essential. And this sets Jesus apart from every other religious figure. You see, in other religions, the purpose was, uh, of, the, of the key figure is to um, live and be an example for how you're supposed to live. Jesus' purpose was actually to come and die and be a sacrifice. In order for Jesus to fulfill his mission, Jesus will become a sacrifice. And you might think, the God who became flesh, the King, the Messiah, Savior of the world, if anybody is exempt from suffering and sacrifice, it should be him. In fact, as the rightful king, he had every right to be honored and to actually be served. But instead of exercising that privilege, he gave it up. Far from it. He came to be served, uh, not, not to be served, but to serve which is the exact opposite of what the disciples are trying to do here. You see, they wanted positions of highest credentials in the kingdom, and Jesus sought no, place, uh, uh, no such place for himself. So he took the path of the lowly servant. And what was his service? What was the thing that he did to serve us? He gave his life as a ransom. This word ransom is a really important theological word. And what it means is the price of release. It was the price that you would pay to liberate a slave out of their slavery or to, to deliver a prisoner of war or to clean the slate for a condemned person. And when that ransom price was paid, it settled all accounts and meant that they were good. And then the prisoner would be free. This freedom was called redemption. And that's exactly what Jesus did for us. By his death, Jesus secured the redemption and release for many. And this little word for is also important. So not only was he the ransom, but it was for someone. The word for here means in the place of. What you should be thinking here is substitute, someone who stands in for somebody else. When the teacher can't be there, you have a sub. They're standing in the place for that teacher. That's exactly what Jesus did for us. He stood in our place. You see that cup of wrath? should have been poured out on us for the ways in which we've marred the goodness and the truth and the beauty of Jesus, for the, for the sins that we've committed. There, is, there should be punishment for that. But Jesus stands in our place and says, I will drink that cup down to the dregs for you. What should have happened to us happened to him instead. Friends, our debt is catastrophic and our slave master unyielding. What kind of ransom would it take to deliver us out of that kind of debt and from that kind of slavery? What Jesus is saying here is, I will pay the ransom that you could never afford, and by it you will be free. Now, I know some of you may be struggling, but why did, but why did Jesus have to die? Like, why did he have to die for me? You might be thinking, is God so irritable that he demands the blood sacrifice of an innocent man to forgive us of our sins and set us free? I mean, you may be thinking, if God is so loving, why didn't he just forgive everybody, issue a worldwide pardon, and be done with it? Why did Jesus have to give his life as my ransom? 
And these are great questions. Let me address this because if you're hung up here, you'll never understand grace. You see, Jesus had to die because of God's love, not because of God's anger. True love is, by its very definition, sacrificial and substitutionary. Many of you are parents in the room. Think about your love for your child. When children are born, they're in a state of absolute dependence, right? Immediately, right out of the gate, they have needs, right? The first thing, what do they do? They start crying. They need food. They need, they need to be clean. They need to be wrapped up, right? They can't survive on their own. They need constant attention. And who pays for that? The parents, right? They're the ones footing the bill. They're the ones giving up the time. And in fact, in order for them to grow up into being self-sufficient adults, the parent essentially has to give up the next 20 years of independence and a lot of money, right? Parents are making that sacrifice. The parents are the ones feeding and changing and dressing and bathing and teaching and caring and playing, and literally the list goes on. And you don't even think about the fact that you're doing it. Why? Because they're yours. They're your kid. You'd give them everything if you could. And unless a parent is willing to give up some of that freedom and time, children won't grow up to be healthy, equipped to handle life on their own. And all of us have seen what happens in the life of a child when they're not willing to make that sacrifice, right? The effects of not wanting to make that sacrifice are devastating on the child. Tim Keller says it this way, all life-changing love is substitutionary sacrifice. And we know that deep down in our souls. We know that sacrifice is at the very heart of love. Anyone who has truly made a difference in your life, whether it was a close friend, a spouse, a mentor, they sacrificed in some way. They stepped into the gap of your life and accepted some hardship so that we didn't have to bear it all on our own. So that's what God does. He steps in. He comes into the world to deal with the greatest threat to humanity, the ultimate evil. And we all know that justice can't be overlooked. When we hear of crimes, we know God can't just overlook that. Our justice system can't just overlook that. It must be dealt with. It must be punished. The, the sin has to be removed. We can't just declare it away. The debt must be paid. And that's the beauty of God's grace. God steps in at infinite cost to himself and he himself is the one that pays the debt we could never pay. He was willing to stand in our place and die so that we could live. So at this point, it's time to put all these pieces together. We've seen that Jesus, in order to fulfill his mission, has to be steadfast. At the same time, to fulfill his mission, we also see that he's going to suffer. And we also see at the end here that he's going to be a sacrifice. You see, without his resolve and determination, Jesus would have wavered. And we know that his mission required suffering. That's what this passage has all been about. And not just run-of-the-mill suffering, but painful suffering at the hands of the very ones he came to save. He was a truly innocent sufferer who was willing to die at our sacrifice. He actually did nothing wrong to demand the death penalty. So what motive would compel someone to stand in that kind of gap? To what, what motive could possibly explain the steadfast endurance to suffer and as a willing sacrifice? The only answer is love. That's the only way to make sense of what Jesus is doing here. 
Jesus's motive was nothing short of pure and perfect love. Jesus came to seek and save the lost, and his motive was love. Only love compels a man to trade places with his enemy and to take on their punishment. Only love explains why Jesus was willing to serve and give his life up as a ransom for many. Only love. Look what Paul says in Romans 5, verse 6 through 8. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare to die. Here it is, the love motive. But God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Today's big idea is just super simple. Jesus' motive for his mission is love. So what do we do with that? How do we apply that? Jesus actually means that we would follow in his footsteps. Now, I don't mean that we actually have to be the ransom for many. We're not a substitutionary sacrifice. We are not equipped or able to do that. Plus, it's already been done, so good news. That was Jesus' unique mission. That said, that same spirit of service and self-sacrifice is what believers are called to walk in. We prioritize the needs of others above our own for everyone who follows Jesus. We are called to serve rather than to be served. And historically, there have been people who've had to serve even to give up this life. So the question is, why would anyone do that? The same reason Jesus did it for you. It's love. Love is what compels a person to serve. And when I say love, I don't mean blind sentimentality. I don't mean hallmark kind of love. I mean true biblical love. Love that is patient and kind, not full of envy or boasting. The kind of love that doesn't even have a hint of arrogance or rudeness. Love that never insists on its own way. Love that never resents and never gets irritated. The kind of love that rejoices with the truth and not in celebrating things that are evil. The kind of love that bears all things, hopes all things, endures all things. The kind of love that never ends. That, my friends, is the love of Jesus, and it's yours. You can be known and loved with that kind of love. And so for those who follow Jesus, we will follow both in his mission, and most certainly, we will follow in that same motive of love. But you can't love like that, friend, if you've never been loved like that. You can't give that kind of love if you've never experienced that love. And so for some today, the first step might be saying something just as simple and believing that Jesus loves you. Let me pray. Father, what a beautiful truth that your son Jesus loves us. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. It doesn't get more profound, doesn't get more life-changing than that. And so, Father, I pray for us in this room that we would be changed by that kind of love, that that kind of love would change our, our mission and it would change our motives, that we would serve those around us. And Father, I also pray that if there's anyone here who has never experienced the love of Christ, that they would hear and respond to the beauty of the gospel today. Would you cause new life to be born in them today? Pray that in Jesus' name, amen.